Hey, Dr. Alan Christensen here, and really jazzed to be joined with a good friend and special guest, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, and eager to go deep in this hugely important topic all about protein. And this is a big thing because, you know, there's a couple of main, I don't know, diet, diet religions out there. We got the paleo and the vegan world, and it's frustrated me because it would be so easy to just dive into one of these worlds and, you know, go along with what they, they say. But I've struggled because I think there's some shortcomings on both sides and a lot of good points on both sides. But one thing I think they're both really missing is about the importance of protein and, and the relevant effects that it has upon not just metabolism, but also longevity. And that's why I'm glad to have Dr. Lyon with us. She's a fellowship trained nutrition and cognition physician, and she focuses on a topic of muscle centric medicine. We think a lot about diseases or about, you know, pathology, but so much health correlates to how well we retain our muscle mass. You know, it's a lot of our metabolic reserve, our immunologic reserve. She's the co-leader of the Ash Center of, in, I'm sorry, the Ash Center in Manhattan. Dr. Lyon focuses on really restoring metabolism, you know, improving hormones and then helping people regain their good body composition. She's an osteopathic medical physician, board certified in family practice, and completed a residency in psychiatry at the University of Louisville. Formal education also correlated with a research fellowship in nutritional science and geriatrics in Washington University in St. Louis. So Dr. Lyon, welcome aboard, glad to have you. Hi, Alan, really nice to speak with you. This is, like you said, probably one of the most important topics, especially as everybody is aging, really uh, with you know longevity and muscle health. And, I think that you astutely pointed out that we always talk about the problem. Everyone talks about being over fat and obesity rather than being under muscled. And really that's the key to health is something that we can augment and that's muscle tissue. You know, that, that's awesome. I've been at this for a long time and looked at a lot of data and kind of came down this path to realize that protein has been underappreciated and misrepresented. And I, I've seen from what you've put out and your information that we're at some similar conclusions. So how, how did your path of, I don't know, understanding or interest, what are some, what's like the general outline that brought you to, to this place? I actually, my godmother is Liz Lipsky. She is, I don't know if you know her. She was one of the founding functional medicine nutritionists. She wrote Digestive Wellness and has been really big in the, the space of the older generation. And I moved in with her when I was 17. So I graduated high school early and I, I moved in with her and that really changed the trajectory of my life. Nutrition became my focus and I knew that I was always gonna uh, study nutrition. So when I went to medical school, prior to that, my pathway to medical school was I did my undergrad in human nutrition and vitamin mineral metabolism. And I did that at the University of Illinois, and I trained under one of the world-leading protein experts. And that's uh, Dr. Donald Lehman, who's been really a prominent figure for over the last 30 years. He'd kill me because I'm dating him. But <laughs> he, he's been really key when it comes to muscle health, branched-chain amino acids, optimizing protein distribution, and defining meal requirements for optimizing the metabolic roles of amino acids. So when I went through medical school, that was really my focus was the nutrition and then the, the muscular health of everything. And, and I viewed everything through the opportunity to take care of this organ of longevity. 
And then I did a residency in psychiatry. And then I did another one in family practice prior to my fellowship at WashU. So all of those things came together to create this perspective. That's really neat. That, that's awesome. So there's, there's this concept about muscle wasting in, in research and in medicine called this sarcopenia, you know, not a term that anyone talks about at the dinner table at home. But it seems like mm-hmm. so many bad things that happen from age, whether it's like risk of pneumonia or total mortality or cancer risk, that so much of this correlates with, with sarcopenia. You know, I think many people get that there's benefits to protein on metabolism. I think we can touch on that briefly. But the thing I really love to focus on is the fact that there's now a lot of fears about protein, about protein being dangerous and about having untoward effects. So let's briefly touch about just the metabolic benefits. I think there's little debate about that. So what are some differences about, like say if someone's on a lower calorie diet, what are some advantages about them going out of their way to assure a good amount of protein? It's really interesting because when you think about the yo-yo diet or do calorie restriction, if you think about the RDA and how that defines the percentage of protein, whether it's a 20% protein diet, that really restricts the total amount of protein needed. And what we know is that as you calorie restrict, there's a very high chance that you will catabolize your muscle. The most important thing that you can do is that during that time, while your calories are lower, your protein intake needs to be much higher. It really needs to be the the bulk of your calories. And when you think about that in terms of metabolic regulation, you then need to really think about defining meals, protein intake per meal to stimulate mTOR and muscle protein synthesis. And that would be 30 grams of protein four to five ounces, which I know that your followers are all doing because you've educated them in terms of that. So that's great. You know, something I see come up a lot, almost like a, like a straw man argument against this point is the idea that saying that, well, we we don't need all that much protein. Could you talk about the distinction between like minimal protein requirements and then also just like optimal protein status? Absolutely. I think it's really important to mention where our requirements came from. So the requirements are based on nitrogen balance studies, which are inherently flawed. They were studies based on nitrogen intake and output on a very young population, 18-year-olds to 23-year-old young men. So they did these studies, and then they based the recommendations of protein based on this group of people. So that kind of gives you a framework for what the recommendation is now, which is 0.8 grams per kilogram. That wow, is so entirely too low. Let's, let's expand on this a little bit. So I've talked, I've talked to my listeners about how that there may be some, some metabolic need for protein, which perhaps is lower, but there's, you know, you may do better above a minimal need, the same way like vitamin C, there could be deficiency or optimal. But you're saying that even the data that's given us what we call this minimal need that's probably misleading onto itself. Absolutely. So we've developed these parameters that are inaccurate. And I don't even think that we know exactly how much protein would be optimal. We have a a sense. I think it's very clear to say that as you age, you need almost double the RDA. Hmm. I would arguably say if we bring it back to sarcopenia with the domestication of our planet, people are moving much less. 
And the sarcopenic changes, which is really a destruction of muscle tissue, of muscle function, muscle strength, but also there's fat that gets deposited. There's all morphological changes that happen within the muscle. I think it's safe to say that sarcopenia starts in your 30s. So having these recommendations of 0.8 grams per kilogram, which maybe the average woman takes in 60 grams of protein, is so low and scary because the trajectory of aging will, is going to be very clear because they're not going to be able to maintain A, their metabolism because they're not going to be able to maintain their muscle. So when you think about optimization, as you age, you actually need more protein because you get this, this biological response. You, can, you have anabolic resistance to the muscle. So there's, it's really important to then increase your protein per meal as you age. Over the age of 65, you need between 30, that would be the very minimum amount of protein to stimulate the tissue. And I'm assuming that there's some shifts that are occurring before then leading up to that. Like many, many of those I talk to are menopausal, especially or perimenopausal. So we're thinking mostly about women, especially mid 40s to you know, early 60s. And you said a lot of protein requirement came from quite young men. So I imagine there could be some gender difference and also some difference in those later years, even before 65. Absolutely. It starts in, in your 30s. Okay. So the change in the tissue muscle becomes insulin resistant. It's this phenomenon that occurs with aging. I mean, you're super, and I'm sure that you've noticed that even you need more protein to maintain your tissue. Would you say that's true? I've, I've certainly seen that. You know, I, I noticed personally, um, one of the biggest things I noticed is just really about satiety and about being filled up. And if I'm if I'm low in protein, there's, I just never feel full. <laughs> you know, I could, whatever else I've, I've got access to, like if I'm traveling or if I just not really arrange things very well, um, I, I do not fill up. But once, once I get a healthy intake of protein, it all seems reasonable. I can have a certain amount of food and be full and stop at some point. Without the protein there, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> that is a really great observation. There's this concept called the protein leverage hypothesis. And they, what the hypothesis says is that we will eat until we've eaten enough protein. So if you're eating foods that are lower in, in protein and higher in carbohydrates, you will continue to feed to get that protein need met. And that can be another source of excess calories because this feeding mechanism, this drive to eat really kicks in. So that satiation of protein is probably secondary to your body meeting its actual need of protein. It's very interesting. You know, and this brings up another good point. So the other discussion that happens a lot is that there's so many, so many foods that are thought of as being protein foods. And, some, and many of them are like super healthy foods, like legumes or nuts and seeds. These things have so much to offer. But the drawback, you're talking about this protein requirement per calorie. The drawback about foods like that is what? Even if they've got some protein, they're just hard things to get you there without being so above a calorie target. Absolutely. And, and then the amino acid profile is totally different. So if you look at chicken or beef, you know that, you, that, that those are high in branch chain amino acids. And we know that you need leucine to trigger this mTOR signaling, which is then muscle protein synthesis. However, if you look at, say, the back of a hemp protein shake, 
and that says it has 30 grams. And then you look at the back of a whey protein shake, and that says that has 30 grams. People may confuse that gram as being the same because the total protein may be the same, but the quality of the protein for the metabolic effects are different. So hemp protein is very low in branched-chain amino acids. And in addition, it's, it's typically bound to fibers and other things. So you actually have to cut that protein number in half. So if you have a shake that's plant-based, unless it's very curated in, in, in a blend, then it's typically 50% that protein number. So if it's 30, it's actually 15 grams of protein that your body is seeing. Versus if you have a whey protein shake, you actually can get away with less. You would be fine with getting 20 grams of protein. And so I think that that's, I'm yeah. Sorry. I think that's really important because plants make the protein requirements for plants and animals make the protein requirement for animals. And so the amino acid profile, those essential amino acid profiles are totally different. Eventually we will move in that direction that things are not just labeled as proteins. Carbohydrates did it. Carbohydrates shows you the sugars. It doesn't just say this amount of carbohydrates versus this amount of carbohydrates. We've gotten smart where we've broken it down with fat and we've broken it down with carbohydrates. We have just yet to do that with, with protein, but it's coming. Wow. So, and this is a tough thing. It makes me nuts because there's, there's so many facets of plant-based diets and plant-based message that I, I really resonate with. You know, there's the right. environmental sides, the ethical, humanitarian, spiritual sides, which I think make perfect sense. But for many people, it's just hard to really meet those requirements unless you're going way above a fuel target without there being some, some version of animal protein. Absolutely. We know that it takes six cups of quinoa to equal one chicken breast. And that's a lot of calories. That's roughly 600, 700 calories. And with the legumes, also a good source of protein, but the amount that you would have to eat is roughly double. I mean, you're talking 500 calories from legumes. I mean, you need to eat a substantial amount more. And the negative aspect of excess calories is really profound, right? I mean, that destroys metabolism. So those, those who are vegan by, by choice and, and are committed to a vegan lifestyle, you mentioned a couple of things, but what are, what are some workarounds or what are some suggestions you might have for them? When they are vegan, I typically add a branch chain amino acid to their highest protein meal if they are using tempeh or bean sources or a mix between pea and rice proteins. Either I'll get the breakdown of the amino acids so that we can look to make sure that they have two and a half grams of leucine. And if they don't, then I add in a branched chain amino acid for them because it's, it's really important. Another aspect of that is when you are younger, your protein requirements are much lower. So you can be vegan and be younger. However, as you go through these hormonal shifts and the anabolic resistance of the muscle happens, it becomes tremendously more difficult. So the other aspect of that is also increasing resistance training because okay. it's another way to stimulate muscle tissue. The two ways to stimulate muscle tissue are diet through protein ingestion, dietary protein, and resistance exercise. That's another way that the vegan community can really overcome that if they are stressing their muscles and, and utilizing that resistance training. 
So the branching amino acids, and just for our listeners, those those are that's a vegan supplement that's not not animal derived, and you'd recommend a dose of that once per day with a main meal, multiple times, and like, like how much how much in quantity would you say for someone? Two, to, like two a, to three times. I'm sorry. Let me just say, if yeah. you're talking like a woman who's 55 years old and maybe 130, 150 pounds or so. Mm-hmm. I would say three times a day. Okay. And correct me if I'm wrong, but to my knowledge, no, no big drawbacks or can be a bit of a taste from products like that, but you can mix them to things, but any other downsides you'd be aware of by adding that? Or? There's not. And in fact, there's no downside to protein in general, which is really important. In fact, we know that bones are made of protein. There's been a lot of data and a lot of research that shows that individuals who get enough protein and eat or, and eat in the higher higher amounts of protein actually have better bone density and kidney function. It's very interesting, the myths versus the data. <laughs> so bones, the old thing you'd hear about that is that, yeah, protein is, has an acid load. Your body will buffer acid from your bones. And this is a great analogy to talk about how, I don't know, I think that one of the big reasons that we get a lot of conflict is because some people make theories about how things should work on a molecular basis. Like what I just said about if you're, if protein has an acidic byproduct and your bones have to be broken down to buffer that in theory, you could see loss of bones from protein intake. But then we look at actual studies like human outcome studies, like not so much just this molecular theory, but well, what happened to people, you know, what happened to the people who are older who had more protein? Did they have less bone tissue? And we'll see a difference there. So yeah, I think one big end of conflict is just are we talking about molecular ideas or are we talking about actual studies that saw what happened to people? Absolutely. And also agenda-driven processes. People become very focused on that protein is protein tends to be a very emotional topic. It is the only food source with a face. Wow. Because of that, it it is the black sheep of the macronutrient family. Nobody has any problem talking about fat. We already know that carbohydrates in excess are, are bad. And then when it comes to protein, it becomes a very emotional aspect. And I think even in the science, people have um, really uh, agendas in the way that they have a belief that, that you know, animals are bad and things of that nature. And that can skew the science. You sent me an email and you... We were going to talk about the, the song study. Yeah. They issued a retraction of those statements, and they found that there was no correlation between high-protein diets and mortality. So it was a study that was published in JAMA, and then they retracted it because the data wasn't correct. So the early version of the study basically suggested that animal protein correlated with mortality risk but yeah, in the notes the study, in the first version even, they said that these things were not present if you factored in obesity or risk factors. So it was pretty curious in its first version. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that talking about it and raising awareness about how important protein is and that we are so underdosed, not only are we underdosed, but the way in which we use protein feedings are really important. Protein needs to be distributed throughout the day. We need to have it in bolus doses. 
you can get away with having it twice a day if you are maxing out your system by having, say, 50 grams of protein. So and it's, just, it's so, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, along, along those lines, I've heard people say you can only absorb so much at a time. So yeah, we'd love, love your take on that. We know that we absorb all of the protein that we eat at once. I believe that that thought process may have come from maxing out this mTOR system, which is muscle protein synthesis. I would say that the minimum amount of protein an individual needs is 30 grams, which is four to five ounces. If you go above that, you do likely max out this system of protein turnover. However, you will always absorb it, whether it's burned for fuel, you will absorb it and then oxidize it. Either you oxidize it or you'll utilize it for tissue turnover in the body. And the idea that you can't digest it more than a certain amount is, is totally not true. So to my reading, the Song study was one of the largest studies to date looking at just the relevance of protein to total mortality. And I mentioned that because there's been a lot of talk about things like the China study or the EPIC study or others that people have looked at and, and had concerns about that. Um, any comments on just the overall body of literature currently on how protein affects total mortality and disease risk? I think that it's safe to say that people over 65 uh, make up 40% of the hospitalizations. And I think that it's also safe to say that the majority of those hospitalizations comes from falls and breaks. Those falls and breaks come from sarcopenia and poor muscle mass and cardiovascular disease, all of which directly require protein to maintain muscle mass. When you think about the implications for a lower protein diet, it's tremendous in the way that these hospitalizations and these issues require that the data is very clear on how we can prevent that from happening. And that is A, much higher protein diets than we are currently having. I think that all your readers should look at the Protage study group, and that is it's an evidence-based recommendation for optimal protein intake in older individuals. And it really breaks down all the data. It's a, a phenomenal article and it's a very easy read. It's so important for individuals now in their 30s to really adopt a higher protein diet. Again, when I say higher protein diet, the minimum anyone should be taking in is 90 grams. That's the very minimum for basic health maintenance. Do you think about that more in terms of grams or percent calories for people? Or? I, I don't look in terms of percent because if you define meal requirements on percent, then you'll never get to that 30 gram threshold, uh, which is necessary for muscle turnover. Okay. I don't even look at percentages when it looks at total calories because the key in terms of augmenting muscle tissue and really maximizing your protein intake is the amount that you have per meal. It's a per meal bolus, which is the, the key and, and something very important to understand. So another concern that's been talked about a bit has been just overall cancer risks. And that was one of the big highlights from the, from the China study. And right. help me out, I've seen data arguing that uh, cured and smoked processed versions of meats certainly have risk factors. 
And red meat, I've seen mixed studies, some suggesting there may be some risk, otherwise others suggesting there may not be. But I've yet to find data arguing about poultry or seafood showing any negative risk for cancer. Uh, what's your take on that same data? I, I absolutely agree with you. I think that the idea there's never been anything that has been good science that's connected protein to cancer. And I think what's really important about that is when we think about cancer, and if you think about mTOR signaling, it's really the excess calories and excess insulin that is a much bigger driver of mTOR signaling and is much more detrimental to health than protein, period. The small meals of high carbohydrates throughout the day, that's what triggers mTOR signaling continuously, which is a system that you don't want activated all the time. So let's talk a bit more about that. I've been hearing that more too in, in discussions about longevity. And this may be a matter to where we're putting a lot of weight on a molecular theory, but many have theorized, looking at mTOR, arguing that this is a, one could conclude from this that towards purposes of longevity and cancer pre pre prevention, you want to minimize mTOR activity. But there's also data arguing the exact opposite. So could you go deep into mTOR for us for a moment? Absolutely. mTOR is the regulator of, it's the anabolic regulator. And there's a couple things that stimulate mTOR. Number one, in a very positive way, mTOR is stimulated by amino acids and it's a very protected system. This system has been around in, and been maintained in our bodies forever. That amino acid, primarily leucine, is what triggers mTOR and then muscle protein synthesis. And based on all the data, we know that muscle is essential for health. Another thing that stimulates mTOR is insulin. Insulin stimulates mTOR and that is considered a growth hormone. That is not great as you age because you're no longer growing up. As you age, if you're stimulating insulin, you're growing out, you're getting wider. That is, that is a negative way in which mTOR is stimulated because that then doesn't necessarily correlate to muscle protein synthesis, but it does correlate to excess calories and a system that then becomes out of control, especially if you're not training and utilizing resistance exercise. Glucose also stimulates mTOR as well as stress. When you think about cancer and you think about mTOR, there is a relationship between mTOR and cancer, and that is to chronic stimulation of mTOR signaling. Chronic stimulation is overfeeding, feeding multiple times a day, and really the driver of that is excess insulin and excess carbohydrates. That is the negative aspect. You know, with many metabolic processes, some is good, and then, then too much is never good. So you're saying mTOR can be activated in different ways, and you're doing it by intermittent doses of higher amounts of protein, it's a positive thing. But if it's chronically exactly. stimulated, then it can be more of a drawback. That's absolutely correct. And that's where people get confused because, again, it's going back to what you were saying, the molecular science. People are looking at this, isolating this one thing, saying mTOR is causing cancer. It's this one thing, and that's, that's not true. We do know that excess calories, being obese, all these inflammatory markers, these types of things, when chronically stimulated, increased risk of cancer. No one has ever shown that protein causes cancer. 
definitely not through mTOR signaling. It's an essential part that we were designed to have. The body is designed to have it. It allows us to have muscle turnover and have muscle, essential for life. You talked about the effects of calories. And I'm, I'm playing with the term, the book I finished managed to complain with the term fuel as opposed to calorie, trying to distinguish the effects about how some macronutrients primarily act as a fuel, and then protein has more of a distinct effect. You know, protein, fiber, perhaps RS, can act in ways that are a bit different, but fats, carbs, even ketones, at some point, they break down to common molecular byproducts, and so they can all be treated as fuel. And you know, fats and insulin, even if fat doesn't have a direct insulinogenic effect, there's a point where it still creates a heightened insulin resistance because of the greater fuel state, putting the body more of in a fed state. So I'm thinking yeah, about more these fuels as a collective unit, and then protein is more of a more of a distinct phenomenon. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think that that's a really great perspective. I actually I haven't thought about it in that way or heard of it discussed about that in, in that way. Protein is different than certainly different in its metabolic effects in terms of carbohydrates and fats. It's so interesting because it's a nutrient signaling effect. You know, we have the essential amino acids and the non-essential amino acids. And, and the body can make carbohydrates, but the body cannot make proteins and these amino acids that, are, that it, it really needs. And we know that there's data to support that even if you were to overconsume protein, it doesn't have the same metabolic effects. There's data to suggest that it's very hard to gain weight when having excess calories in terms of protein. And I think that that is a very interesting an interesting thing. It is extraordinarily important to the body. You know, I think a lot of the papers that seem to suggest an advantage to lower carbohydrate diets, uh, many of them fail to distinguish between what's a lower carbohydrate diet and what's a higher protein diet. You know, in most, in most cases, when someone does lower carbohydrate, the common way you would do that is by consuming more, more animal foods or more protein foods. We are also switching the protein content. Mm. Yeah. It's, um, that's true. And the other thought is really about, um, you mentioned kidney function, and that's also been a common idea that protein somehow has a harmful effect with the kidneys. And I've heard some argue that if there has been kidney damage from some other reason, that may change how the kidneys work, but that's not the same as saying protein led to that damage. Can you talk a bit more about Absolutely. kidney function and protein? The data suggests that, that actually protein helps glomerular filtration and that it is good for the kidneys and good for the body. The kidneys utilize protein. What you say is absolutely true, that if someone has pre-existing kidney disease, then you have to pull back on the protein. But if someone is healthy, protein has never been shown to actually cause kidney disease. The flip side is carbohydrates have definitely been shown to cause diabetes and it's really the diabetes that destroys kidneys, not, not protein. Protein is very beneficial for the body in, in all ways, in, in immunity, in mood regulation, neurotransmitters, all of those things. So it definitely does not, going back to your question, it definitely does not affect kidney function in a negative way. You know, I talked a bit before I mentioned about just some of the environmental and ethical thoughts. Have you seen the, the whole, this, this growing industry of, of, of grown protein, of like synthesized, synthesized animal protein? 
I haven't. I think that's really interesting. And I also think that the sustainability issue is something that may be very confusing for people. When you think about Montana, and you think about Montana in the winter, and you think about what could possibly grow there, there's tons of land, and really there's land that is only available for pastured raised animals. And it's not the same, the sustainability issue, I think we really need to do more research and really have an objective view because there's certain plots of land that only animals can be raised on. And it's not either or vegetables or animals. So check, check out um, Memphis Meats or just Google Culture Meats when you get a minute. There's actually a really good TED Talk. Uh, this is something I've been following for a bit. I'm super excited about. But basically, wow. they've, they've, taken, um, they've taken biopsies from, from cow muscle, from chicken muscle, they've done from fish also. And from the cells from biopsy, they've cloned these cells. And they've grown them. They've grown them basically like you grow a hydroponic plant, mm. plant in a vat and just given synthetic amino acids. And what you end up with it's it's not it's not fake meat. It's it's meat. I mean, if you were looking at a chunk of, of steak under a microscope and this cultured meat under a microscope, there's no differences. It's the same genetic. It's the same stuff. Uh, they've been able to also adjust nutrient profiles. You know, micronutrients, macronutrients. They've they've blended several different uh, cell cultures to get flavor and texture where they want them to be. And wow. Yeah, so in theory, you could take a biopsy one time of an animal and from that point on have just no more animals needed to grow as much as you would want. So, and how expensive is that process? Is that actually happening? It's happening. It's not, it's not scaled or cost-effective just yet, but that's really only an issue of just time and, time and work on it. Uh, mm. I, I'm pretty confident that in not too long, this will be just the default thing. There's actually... A, like I said, there's, there's a TED talk about someone, one of the founders who's got a chunk out and he's eating it and sharing it with people and talking about it, but it, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> That's really interesting. That, that would be, that would definitely solve a lot of the sustainability argument, sustainability issues and arguments that people raise in terms of, of that. Yeah, we that can would see be that. important. You know, my son's 14 or my daughter's 19. I could see them telling their kids or grandkids that, yeah, we used to drive our own cars and we used to raise animals for food. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> goodness. <laughs> well, this is great stuff. And I asked before, and you said that you had a protocol you put together that gives listeners a real concrete guide of how you put that together over the course of a four-week diet. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I based my protocol on the 30 years of research in protein metabolism, and I created a, a protocol that really optimizes body composition for men and women, and it has very specific ways to do that. I recommend between 30 and 50 grams of protein three times a day. The ratio of carbohydrates to proteins is typically one-to-one. -one. I actually, like you, prefer to backload carbohydrates have those in the evening, or of course, if someone is an athlete, then post-training, but it's very much managed. I have my patients go over no more than 30 grams per meal 
depending on their size, be their size because I really want to minimize insulin response. And uh, my protocol is really about augmenting muscle tissue and taking care of the organ of longevity, which is muscle. That's, that's awesome. We're going to put a link with the show notes for anyone, but do you want to mention the URL? If it's one you can just spell out for us too? Or? They can get it on my website at drgabriellelyons.com. They can go on there and there should be a pop-up link and they can download it. That's awesome. Dr. Lyons, thank you so much for your time. This is a hugely important topic. And again, I really value your perspective on this. And this has been really, really good stuff for everyone. So appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really, I'm really happy to share the message. (laughs) All right. And those of you out there, thank you so much for hanging out and listening and take great care of yourself. We'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye. Does that mean we hang out? (laughs) (laughs) We're all good. I'll I'll trim the recording and yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. And I sent some notes on the rest of that too. And yeah, I look forward to any way I can clarify that stuff. Happy to do so. And we'll see you soon in Austin. Awesome. Hopefully that was good. I hope it wasn't too sciencey for your people, but I really, I, I think it's important. No, it's good stuff. My readers are a little, little more savvy and they, they, they appreciate it when there's more, more detail like that. So it's, it's perfect. Okay. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Will you send me um, your podcast? Is it under, what is it under Dr. Alan Christensen? It is. And I'm actually this week finishing up my content calendar for the year. This is, this one will probably be, I'm thinking first quarter, but yeah, I'll give you links to when this comes out, give you some advance notice and all for sure. Awesome. 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 And I have one, one question for you that no iodine. Yeah. One question. Yeah. There's been papers on this, you know, one of the biggest variables for helping your thyroid function and to be really precise, it's not no, but the sweet spot historically had been about one to 300 micrograms. So if you were on that 1.5 grain, for example, that right there is about 190 micrograms and it's tough to get much less than hundred in your diet. So when someone's on thyroid, it's because it's not that you need none. It's just that the amounts that you do well with, you've got to, you got to skew more to less than more. It's easy to go way above that. So most well, I was taking iodine drops. <laughs> Ooh, cool. So when you stop that, your thyroid's going to work so much better. <laughs> okay. There's All right. no more, so that's there's so no great sure, to know. There's no more surefire way of just suppressing thyroid metabolism than extra iodine. Oh, my iodine, my urinary, you know, I didn't do a urinary iodine. I did a blood spot, spot iodine. There's no and good it was iodine lower. Tests. Yep, there's no good iodine tests. There's some decent ones for populations. Like if you look at thousands of people on a spot urinary iodine, you get a gauge about the population status, but it takes literally about 300 more samples on one person to get within 90% predictive value. Um, 24 hour ones are not much better. Blood markers are not better either. There's no great iodine tests, but there's really no simulate iodine well. Um, Google Google my name and iodine and you'll go down a a chain chain of a rabbit hole from which you can go pretty deep. But there's so much misinformation about that nutrient. Okay, that's so, so great. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That was really great. I'm really happy to, to chat about that stuff. Yeah, likewise.